All right. Welcome to Bible study. How y'all doing this evening? All right. I'm more energized than I was last week this time. So, <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you all uh, this evening. Hope you all had a good week so far. Um, yeah, you did. Um, and thanks for this smells good up front when you walk in, uh, Phyllis. Appreciate that. When I uh, I said, man, it smells real good in here. So <laughs> I appreciate whatever. Is it a new scent you put in that little thing up there? Yeah. But it smells good. That scent smells fantastic. So we uh, appreciate you for doing that. Uh, it smells real good, and they're just keeping everything clean and and uh, whatnot. So um, tonight we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapters 14 and 15. We're going to to put them together i had a chance to read over these chapters the last couple of days uh trying to get a central theme uh for them uh chapter 14 deals with clean and unclean foods and 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 tithing under the old system uh so chapter 14 basically deals with uh the commands regarding Israel separating from the pagans around them in ways that that they ought to be separate from the pagan uh, nations and it shows in the uh, begins by you know cutting themselves and then the clean and unclean foods and then the tithing and then the uh, the Sabbath year or the seventh year and how to deal with slaves um, so everything that God is talking about here um, is dealing with Israel being a separate nation. Remember, uh, this is a holy nation. Remember, holy means separate, set apart. So these different commands that we're looking at and studying is, is God showing how his people are to govern themselves uh, in a way to distinguish themselves from the world. In fact, uh, I got a couple of uh, sheets of paper on the printer a friend of you get them from me that I printed out with a couple of questions uh, that we're going to uh, ask and answer as we go through this uh, study so let's pray and go before the Lord and then we'll uh, dive into our uh, text for tonight Father we thank you for your grace we thank you for this day we thank you for those who are here gathered for Bible study and those who are uh, watching us live on Facebook I pray, Lord, that you fill me with your spirit to teach this text well, uh, to reveal uh, your character and your nature, and also reveal uh, the gospel and gospel truths uh, and how we should uh, live in this world in which you have us in this time period. And I pray, Lord, that you send the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear tonight. Lord, make your word clear, make your truth clear to all of us that we may grow thereby. In Christ's name, amen. So chapter 14 starts off. The first section deals uh, with how they are to grieve. So it says here in the ESV translation, you are the sons of the Lord, your God. You should not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord. Holy remember meaning separate uh, to the Lord, your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So 
A parallel of this is uh, Leviticus 21, where God talks about the same thing. So God is telling them not to cut themselves because these were practices that the pagans did. Uh, the pagans grieved by cutting themselves, you know, as a way of dealing with uh, grief. So God was telling them they should not cut themselves or shave the front of their uh, head. So remember, God is telling them don't be like the pagans because it was common for them to cut themselves or shave the front of their head to shave their uh, foreheads. And this was part of a pagan burial ritual. Uh, the pagans did that. Now, the ancient Near East cultures, you know, in the Middle East, they uh, did this as a way to, to mourn. They mutilated the human body. And why is this important? Because we're all image bearers of God. And we ought to glorify God in our bodies and how we treat our bodies and what we do to our bodies. Uh, our bodies do not belong to us. Uh, we, are even, we, are even, we are even to steward our bodies. I remember um, maybe it was 2017, 2016, I had a former student of mine uh, who uh, died by committing suicide, and I was one of the ones who uh, did the eulogy at his funeral. His parents are very close friends of uh, me and Fran. And I remember one of his classmates was there uh, at the funeral that I knew, and I had a chance to talk to this uh, young man. And I noticed on his arm and wrist that he had some uh, fresh, like, wounds where he had cut himself. And I asked him about it. And he said this is the way he, uh, you know, coped with this death. And, you know, cutting was a big thing probably about, what, Fran, maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago where students were doing that. It was a, it was a contagion. And I mean, when I was a school teacher uh, back in 07, 08, you had students who would cut themselves. I was like, you know, just cut themselves on their wrists or on their on their arms as a way of, I guess, grieving or, or dealing with stress or whatever uh, the case may be. Uh, that was a big thing about 10 to 15 years ago, among, especially among adolescents, you know, the, the cutting of themselves, the mutilation of the flesh, which is basically what it is. That's something that pagans did. That is a pagan uh, practice. And you still have some cultures, even until this day, where a, a mourner, uh, removes the joint of a finger. This is done in uh, some Polynesian nations where uh, they they grieve by uh, doing that. Uh, but this is not to be uh, named among the saints. And in this context, among God's people. So God is telling them, don't do this. Why? Because you are a people holy to the Lord. So we are not to grieve as pagans. Paul himself even said that as believers, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Uh, pagans have no hope in this world. They have no hope of uh, eternal life. They have no hope of redemption. They have no hope of heaven. So they grieve as such. You know, I always say this. You can tell, uh, generally speaking, at a funeral 
whether the deceased was truly in the Lord because of how the family grieves. He can also tell how uh, which of the family members are in the Lord. You know, generally speaking, you're going to always have exceptions. But you could tell how uh, their belief b beliefs are based on how they grieve. Because some people, they conjure up, or try to conjure up rather, their loved ones all the time. Because they are grieving as if they have no hope. They have no hope in the resurrection. They have no hope that they will see their loved ones in heaven because they themselves don't have the hope of heaven. So they know deep down inside that their loved ones don't have that hope. So they grieve as such. And it becomes sentimental, understood. You you know, you have people, you know, that their parents died five ten oh, I still miss my mom. And it's, it's nothing wrong missing your relatives. I'm not I'm not saying that. But the way that they say it is 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 as if like there's no hope for them. Like they're their their loved ones, their their mom, their dad that they miss, or their grandparents, they 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 don't have rest in their souls that they're with the Lord. That's why they grieve their loss so much. But for believers, we know that death is not the end. But some people grieve as if death is the end, like that's just it. And they wish that their loved ones were back with them. But if they're in the Lord, they're in a much better place where there is no sin. They're with the Lord. They're worshiping Christ. They, they you know, when, when the resurrection comes, they will take on glorified bodies. So we as believers, we grieve not like the pagans. We don't grieve as if there uh, is no hope. So, um, that's what we have to understand that we have a hope we have a hope and so Paul says this um, we here it is right here and this is a good verse to look at right here that we're not to be like the unbelievers who uh, grieve as if they have no hope okay just an example when Lazarus died uh, John 11 chapter uh, you know the Bible says that Jesus wept but Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus died because he was the one who had power over death Jesus wept because of how the people grieved because of their unbelief because they did not believe that he told them I am the resurrection and the life so he had to assure them that he is the resurrection and the life so he grieved because of the people's unbelief not because man he knew that I was it for Lazarus because guess what he raised him from the dead. Jesus was the one who had power over, over life. So we, as we grieve, we know that we have hope. Paul said this in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, the fourth chapter, talking about the resurrection of the dead. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren. This is 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, those who, who died in the Lord. So that you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. 
the rest have no hope the the pagan has no hope the unbeliever has no hope they have no hope in the resurrection of the body he says for we believe that jesus died and rose again and so we believe that god will bring with jesus those who have fallen asleep in him so when we have a loved one that grieves that's i mean when we have a loved one that we lose who's in the lord we don't we don't have to cut ourselves or or put on some type of shouting and screaming and you know putting on a spectacle at the funeral and some of y'all probably in at funerals where people have done that you know trying to rock the casket and bring them you know all this unnecessary emotion people trying to pull their loved ones you know all this it's stupid it's stupidity that's grieving as a pagan if if so-called christians are doing that we don't grieve like the pagans do when we lose a loved one who's in the Lord. So God was telling Israel the same thing. Don't go, don't cut yourselves. Don't shave your forehead. You are separate. You are holy unto me. You are, our tre- you are my treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So this is the first form of separation. Next. The principle of separation deals with what they should eat. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into these dietary laws. Uh, they were the ancient Jewish dietary laws. We don't we don't follow these. But he says you should not eat any. Excuse me, abomination. Abomination is basically unclean animals. These are the animals that you may not eat. So this 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 is for ancient Jews. Okay. He names them. Ox, sheep, goat, deer, gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, antelope, and the mountain sheep. So they were not supposed to eat any of those wild animals. Not even deer. You know, we eat venison, some people do. Some people eat oxtails. That's a very popular dish in a lot of restaurants. I don't know who eats goat. I mean, I know goat milk. Drink the goat milk. He says, every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you should not eat because of these. And he names the camel, the hare, which is the rabbit, the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof are unclean for you and the pig because parts of the hoof does not chew the cud is unclean for you even to this day Jews Orthodox Jews don't eat pork and even Muslims Orthodox Muslims do not eat pork uh, a pig is considered an unclean animal uh, for Jews and Muslims so they don't eat bacon they don't eat uh, a nice uh, barbecue sandwich you know, pulled pork, they don't eat uh, ribs, you know, short ribs, St. Louis ribs, whatever kind of ribs. They don't eat any of that. They don't eat ham for Thanksgiving or, or whatnot. They don't eat pork. They don't eat pig feet or pig ears or whatever the case may be. Uh, until this day, uh, like I said, Orthodox practicing Jews don't eat pork. Uh, so, and, and, and Muslims don't either. 
Uh, and then some people just do it for dietary. I mean, I don't eat a lot of pork because it has a lot of uh, salt in it, a lot of sodium. I eat, you know, me and Fran tell you, I'm a sucker for a good barbecue pork sandwich. But I don't do it all the time. Uh, every now and then I'll do it because it'll, it'll give me a headache. Uh, so, but for them, they cannot eat that. The pig. He says, their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not even touch. So that's how uh, serious it was. And then it says, uh, continuing verse 9, of all that are in the waters you may eat these. So these are the animals that they could eat in the water. Okay? So it says, these are certain sea creatures. Uh, whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you should not eat. It is unclean for you. So animals or fish rather that had fins and scales okay that means they couldn't eat catfish because catfish didn't have scales okay now shellfish would be unclean because clams crabs and oysters and and lobster do not have fins and scales so uh, crustaceans basically they couldn't eat crustaceans shrimp lobster oyster clam they couldn't eat that because they did not have uh uh, fins and scales so only seafood or fish that have fins and scales they can eat so that means no catfish for ancient Jews okay now just imagine that now right people love the catfish so um, this is interesting DYK did you know my wife loves catfish but her husband doesn't <laughs> Fran loves some good catfish she loves a good fried piece of catfish she does uh, but her husband doesn't and I noticed something about catfish catfish is only good fried like it's not good like broiled or, or baked now, now tilapia I love tilapia tilapia is a freshwater fish but uh, catfish no but Fran loves, loves some catfish she loves some good catfish isn't that right Fran yeah she loves it there's nothing wrong with that. You know, she don't eat it a lot, but you know, sometimes we go out to eat, she'll she'll get the catfish. But anyway, they couldn't eat catfish. Now it gets to birds. You may eat all clean birds, but the ones you shall not eat: <laughs> the eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, uh, the kite. I don't know what a kite is. The falcon of any kind, every raven of kind of any kind. The ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, whatever that is, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They should not be eaten. All clean winged things you shall eat now there's some categories of, of animals here there are three categories that God gives he gives first the predators like uh, eagles you know birds that hunt basically they hunt for their food so you got the falcon you got the eagle 
you got the kite, you know, you got the raven, okay? And then you have the scavengers. The scavengers are, uh, the reason why they couldn't eat the scavengers is because they carry a disease, you know, vultures. They, what do they do? They eat dead animals. You see them circling around sometimes, you know? They, that's how God, that's what God created them for. They were carriers of disease and they regularly came in contact with dead bodies. So you're talking about the vultures and, and, and seagulls, they eat whatever you throw at them. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, so they have to take all these animals out of their diet for those reasons, because some were predators and then the others were uh, scavengers. And then some of them uh, were potentially uh, dangerous uh, birds, period. They could eat quail. Okay, quail was a was a harmless bird. They did eat quail. They could eat chicken. Chicken is a uh, bird. Okay, so they could eat that, but they couldn't eat uh, these other types of birds. And then it says here in verse 21, you should not eat anything that has died uh, naturally or dies of itself. Any animal that dies of itself, uh, it hasn't properly uh, bled, so uh, they couldn't eat it. Okay. You may give it to a sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it or you may sell it to a foreigner for you are a, whole, a people holy to the Lord your God. Okay. So they could give it to someone else. Uh, and for Israel, it was important that they bled animals uh, before they ate them because, you know, blood represented the, the principles of, uh, you know, animal life. They could not eat, eat the blood. So animals had to be bled out before they, you know, if they had a steak, they didn't have it medium rare, <laughs> you know, because they couldn't eat the, eat the blood of it. And then it says, you should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Yuck. Uh, but this is what um, the pagans did. Remember, all these dietary laws were to separate themselves from the pagans. So that means the pagans probably ate some of these different birds and stuff. They probably ate some of these different fish. They probably ate some of the hooved animals. They probably ate deer and gazelle and, and all that stuff, the wild goats. You know, the pagans ate that. So remember, God is separating his people from these nations by doing it okay another way to separate was through the tithe the command of the tithe it says you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain remember they lived in an agrarian culture where commodity was money they lived in a, a commodified culture you know they didn't have I mean they had paper money but uh, they also use uh, grain and all those things to, to, to enact trade. So you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil or the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. The word tithe is important. It, it, it describes giving 10%. So God commanded that it be really 10% of them. That's why he said, uh, truly tithe. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the ground year by year. So the Jews had to tithe everything. You know, we just tithe or give money, but they had to tithe 
everything. I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot that they had to do. And then he says in verse 24, and if the way is too long, so remember they had a centralized place of worship. We talked about that a few chapters before. They had one central place of worship. But if everybody couldn't get to that place, then guess what God did? It was basically long distance tithing. So God was even showing mercy by doing this. So he says here, if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because that place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So basically, the distance from the central place of worship uh, was no excuse for not tithing. Okay? But to make it easier, they were to convert the tithe into uh, money. Okay? And, and so, so that's what they were to do, to convert it into money, to do something with it, and also to give to the uh, Levite, to the priest. Okay? So this shows that God is basically a common sense God. He didn't, repla he didn't place unreasonable demands on his people. He knew that some of them would not be able to make it to the central place of worship uh, to give. You know, God does. He's, he's a reasonable God. He doesn't make unreasonable demands on his people. He made a way for people to conveniently tie if they couldn't make it to uh, the place. So this shows that God uh, doesn't give unreasonable demands on his people. And then you have the third year tithe, verses 28 and 29, at the end of the third year. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up in your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work uh, your hands, all the work of your hands that you do. So the purpose of this was to take care uh, of those who, who lacked. God blesses the giving heart. God loves a, a cheerful giver. So you, uh, you get to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, within their towns that they may come and eat and be filled and so this was taking care of those people and this was a symbol of that so this was a third year time and it was to be, uh, benefit those who had no land and the potentially poor so God made sure uh, that uh, that was taken care of and this shows the importance of being within God's community. God commanded that his people take care of the other people in their community. We're going to see this play out in the, in the next chapter. And this plays out, this is the same, this is the importance of the local church. I had a man call me, and it's the same guy, called me a few minutes before church uh, this past Sunday, 
and I recognized the number, and I recognized the guy's voice. I said, hey, I talked to you before. He gave me his name. It's like Jim Smith, you know, something common like that. Uh, I just want, uh, I want to see if your church, uh, you know, uh, helps helps people. I said, yeah, I said, we do. I said, we help our members. Uh, we, we've always done that. We've always helped those who, uh, you know, serve the church faithfully and uh you know being part of our church and everything i said so we do help people uh, that's our first concern is to help our church members and they asked him, my next question was do you have a church family he said you know to be honest with you i don't it's the same guy that calls i promise you, he calls like every three or four months and um it's a talladega number that he calls for him but it's the same guy and i always ask him the same question do you have a church on uh be honest with you i don't so well, you know, you're always welcome to come and, and uh, you know, worship with us and, uh, you know, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, so forth and so on. Of course, he never shows up. But my point is, I told him we do help out our church members. Those who are part of our gospel community, that is what the church is supposed to do. First and foremost is be of, of help and of service to our church members. So Israel, God was telling Israel to basically practice the same thing. It's to take care of those in their community. The uh, Levites, the strangers, the fatherless, who are basically orphans, and the widow. They were, were supposed to take care of them. The thing that was not supposed to be done, as a lot of these false uh, preachers do, is make sure that they get everything. Make sure that they're enriched. And they're not using that to help out uh, others. So they're supposed to have regard for, for the ministry. With the Levites and also uh, with those who are the sojourners and the fatherless and, and the widow. They're supposed to take care of them also. Amen. Again, this is separating Israel from all the pagans. Because the pagans didn't do that. They didn't take care of their own. But just like Christians. Christians are the most giving people. Especially here in this nation. We're the most giving people. We're the most charitable. We are the most charitable people. Christians really are. We're very giving people. Unlike those in the world. So now we get to the 15th chapter. This is speaking of the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year. And this is the seventh year. You know the Sabbath day was the seventh, the seventh day. So now we're talking about the Sabbath year. And what do we see taking place in this uh, chapter? First we talk about laws regarding the poor. And then we're talking about laws regarding slaves. And this is what Israel was to do in this Sabbath year. So the first section here talks about releasing of debts every seventh year. So it says here at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Okay. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. So all debts between Israelites are to be canceled at the end of every seven year, regardless of uh, the amount of the debt. 
Now the debts owed by the foreigners, like those nations around them, no, they cannot be forgiven. Now you've had some churches, I know it was either last year, year before last, you had some churches and some false preachers talking about the the basically like a, a, a seventh year, like they counted all the seventh years from this time and said that this year is the year that y'all all your debts are going to be forgiven and, and leading their that church members to think that that, that was going to happen. It's crazy. That's not what this is for. That's not what that means. We can't apply this law to our day. This is strictly for Israel. It says in verse 4, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God by being careful to do all uh, this commandment, I command you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So that is the promise that God came, gave to them. So the ideal in verse 4 is a command to be generous, basically, that let there be no poor among you. That was the ideal. Because this land is going to be blessed by God. Remember, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land flowing with abundance that they were going into. So if Israel upheld these economic laws, that there would be no poor among them. If they upheld these laws, it was always conditional. It was always conditional. But if they fail to fulfill this law, there will always be poor and the needy. Always be. There will always be that. So verse 7 says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you should not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Okay. Now, this law does not provide, this, this law is not talking about the poor outside of Israel. When he's talking about your brother, he's talking about your fellow Israelite. Okay. That's who it was talking about. It wasn't talking about the pagans or those outside of, of uh, covenant Israel. Okay. This command is internal. It is, you should not do what? Harden your heart or shut your hand. Because true generosity comes from where? The heart. True concern for others comes from where? The heart. He says, don't harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. It was never to be used to discourage giving to those in need. It was discouraging lending to the poor. That's what it was uh, to discourage. So God wanted the uh, Israelites to be uh, basically generous givers to those in need. That's what he wanted. And when he says of your brethren, it reminds me when we were preaching through Galatians, Galatians 6 and 10 says, as we have opportunity, let us go do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, we're good to all. 
We're good to our family, perhaps close friends or whatever, but we should be especially good to who? One another. We should especially help other brothers and sisters in Christ, other brothers and sisters in the church. We're especially helpful to them, to the saints. We should not shut our hands or, clo- or harden our hearts or, or, or close our hands to the faithful. We ought to be generous toward one another as believers. That's what God calls us toward as saints. Then it says the release of slaves every seven years. So it's talking about the giving part. Now it's talking about the releasing of slaves. So what does this let us know? That, that there was slavery during this time. Slavery didn't begin in the United States in the 17th century. <laughs> okay. Slavery is as old as human history. Okay. The most wealthiest people had servants that, who worked for them. Uh, Abraham had vast livestock. Uh, he had servants who, uh, you know, help, helped him to manage his livestock. You know, all the patriarchs did. Uh, Israel had the same thing. So he says, if your brother, a Hebrew or a Hebrew woman. So this is their covenant brother. Okay. Is sold to you. He shall serve you six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free. And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. But you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of the threshing floor, and out of your wine press. Excuse me. So, slavery in Israel was short-term. It wasn't long term and it wasn't lifelong. It was basically to help the farmers. Okay. That, that, that's what it was basically for. So. They needed people to work their fields and all those different things. So slavery in some sense was an act of charity when you let them go because you didn't let them go out on their own. That You had to do what? Give them something this is how it was supposed to be done now some slaves decided to stay in slavery okay because they saw uh, the status of an employee as very attractive and we'll look at that here in verses 16 and 17 in a second so God tells them you furnish them liberally out of their flock out of your flock rather and why are they to do this verse 15 says what you yourself were what slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you therefore I command you this thing today so God commanded generosity for the departing slave basically giving them something to start a new life with this was this was good. This was give this would give the slaves a, a a a hope of a hope in freedom, and give them a, a a great incentive. If they know that hey, I'm leaving slavery, my owner is taking care of me, giving me something to help me, basically like you know in our language we say get back on your feet, so to speak. 
So again, this is showing good treatment that God commands of his people toward each other. Now, verse 16 says, but if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household. Since he is well off with you, then you shall take in all. Okay, and all is a, um, let's see, get something that pierces something. I've, I've seen that word before. Let me go to my Google machine right quick. I think in all. Yeah, it's a tool. Okay, a small pointed tool used for piercing holes, okay? So, man, they had like the little guns back then that you could pierce. So you, you should take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at least have the cost of a hired servant. He has served you for six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So if the person decided to stay. In some cases the slave didn't want to leave their master. So the, the piercing symbolized uh, permanent ownership. And it was the same for female slaves. But these slaves were still treated well. That's the, that's the big point of they were not to uh, mistreat them. Now, this points to Christ. Psalm 40 and 6 says, my ears you have opened. And this speaks of the opening of the ear in the bond slave ceremony this is what one commentator said Jesus was the willing bond slave of, of God the father he did the father's will he came to do the father's will he came to do what the father asked him to do my battery's going low this is a little bit ticking so Jesus came to do the father's will he came to do what the father called him to do so he was he was the willing uh, slave of God the father so to speak so this willing slave in this Old Testament passage is a is a picture of of Christ as a willing slave of the Lord of his father God the father so it's also a picture of us as being willing slaves of God also we're willing servants of God we're called to surrender to the Lord to surrender to his commands that's what we're called to do to be slaves to God. Paul said himself that he's a slave of Christ. We're we're called to be slaves. We're called to be willing slaves. God is not a ruthless tyrant of a Lord. Okay? He's not a cruel slave master. 
Satan is. Those who follow the devil, yes, Satan is very cruel to them because he seeks to destroy them. He seeks to devour them. But God is not a cruel slave master. He is a loving slave master. And we willingly serve the Lord. Now, pagans branded their slaves. With Israel, God just had them to pierce their ear. As opposed to the pagans. The pagans branded their slaves like animals. You know, like you like you brand cows that belong, you know, to your ranch. That's not what they were supposed to do. So it was totally different. They just pierced their ear. Yeah, no, it was just showing this ownership. Yeah, because remember, they were volunteering to stay with their their master. Yeah, they were volunteering to stay, so it wasn't it wasn't under compulsion. I mean, that's a good question, but yeah, it, it it was just showing that they had ownership of them by by piercing their ear with an awl. You know, now we got the little nail piercing gun. We just go like that. But back then, they didn't have that. <laughs> you had to put your ear against the door and boop, do like that. Yeah, just imagine that, right? But that's how they did it. But anyway, the point was to to show that they were uh, that the the slave master had permanent ownership of them. Okay. Then it gets to the firstborn. Males. It says, all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So this is the principle of the, the firstborn. So they ought to be sanctified basically to the Lord. Again, we're talking about being set apart, being made holy. So the firstborn was supposed to be set apart to God. It's not to be used for regular domestic work. And this was for three reasons. One, because uh, Israel was God's firstborn. If you look at Exodus 4 and 22, you'll see that. Look at this verse, Exodus 4 and 22. Genesis... Exodus 4 and 22. Thus shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. That's Exodus 4 and 22. So Israel is the Lord's firstborn. And also the firstborn was thought to be the best. Always the best. The firstborn was always thought to be the best. So this was another reason to set the firstborn aside because the firstborn was the best. And also firstborn deals with redemption. God redeemed Israel because they were his firstborn. They were his firstborn. He redeemed them because they were his firstborn. So that was the significance of this. Now it continues here. Verse 20. Uh, you shall eat it 
you and your household before the Lord your God year by year at the place that the Lord would choose but if he has any blemish if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God you shall eat it within your towns the unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer only you should not eat its blood you shall pour it out on the ground like water now when the firstborn was brought to the uh, you know tabernacle a portion of it was given to the family that brought the animal that was always uh, the case and this was uh, to so that the family could have a joyful ceremonial uh, meal uh, before the Lord. So some parts of the of the animal that was brought to be sacrificed was given to the family who brought it, and it had to be if it was blemished. You know, we talked about that just this past Sunday that we ought to be holy and blameless. You know, blameless means uh, unblemished. So if it is lame or blind or has a serious defect or a blemish, you will not sacrifice to the Lord. You may eat it within your gates. So it, it couldn't be sacrificed to the Lord because it had a, a blemish to it. So the animal, the firstborn, had to be unblemished. But if it was blemished, it had to be eaten in a, a normal a non-sacrificial way a non-sacrificial meal rather again they cannot eat the what blood of the animal separating themselves from the pagans so I got a couple questions here as we get ready to uh, close that I typed out from an old Bible study Just something to think about as we, uh, how much time we got? Okay, we got about 10 minutes. I may not take all this time. How did the Israelites handle the poverty problem? We talked about it. They handled it within their community. Think about, you know, Jesus said the poor are always going to be among you. We're always going to have poor people. Okay, one, because of sin. Two, because when you get the state involved in trying to alleviate poverty, the state actually creates more poverty. When I talk about the state, the state I'm talking about government. Do you all, you all may not realize how many anti-poverty programs and organizations exist in this world. There are so many people, groups, organizations trying to eliminate poverty. Biblically, looking at this context, the Bible gives the ideal first with Israel that Israel takes care of what is own. They take care of their own covenant people. I think a, a principle that we can gain from that is we've got so far away from it we can't go back is people taking care of each other looking out for the needs of others voluntarily without compulsion the problem with the government getting involved 
is the government wants to do it by compulsion, by basically taking your money through taxes. You don't do that. You don't voluntarily give taxes. As soon as you get a job, guess what? You're going to get taxed. <laughs> you're, not you're not volunteering to do that. No, they're going to take it. But I think biblically, voluntarily is the way to do it. Now, your heart has to be right with God because God said don't, uh, in your heart, it, it, it starts in your heart, don't clench your hand. It says, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient uh, for his need, whatever it may be. This is in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 15. He says, take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year of the year release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. So he was telling them, don't give grudgingly. You know, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. They were not to give out of compulsion. So he was telling his people, don't hold grudges. Don't don't begrudgingly give to your 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 fellow brothers and sisters. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all the work. In all your work and in all that you undertake. For there shall never cease to be poor in your land. So this was how the Israelites handled the poverty problem. They opened their hands. They didn't harbor hatred in their heart toward their brother. It was in their heart to do it. So this is the ideal. That's the ideal. We're so far removed from that. You know, during uh, the shutdowns during COVID, you had schools, they were giving away free food left and right. I, I, know, I don't know if y'all remember that. It was just two, what, three years ago. Uh, schools were giving out free food for anybody to come pick up. You know why? Because the schools were closed down, the cafeterias were closed down, so they had to do something with their food. I know Sachs was doing it. All the county schools, probably and city schools, they were all giving away free food to the students, and some were just giving out to the community. People just come out and just get free food because they couldn't just throw that food away. They didn't want to go to the waste. Now just what, almost three years ago, 2020. They were just giving it away. Did that alleviate poverty? No, because a lot of those people that take that food, they needed it, but they also are the type of people that always want a handout. And because of that, they're going to remain poor because they know that they can get what? Free stuff. Because the government gives it out for free so it becomes a grift as they say and it all it does is it perpetuates the cycle of poverty where people don't want to do better it's not that they can't you got some who can't but you got those who are able-bodied and we probably know people like that right 
the able body the Lord's, but they they don't want to work. And they're able. That's not how you alleviate poverty. But in the Christian community, this is the ideal that believers help out one another. We shouldn't ever have a believer in our church who who has their lights cut off or who uh, is going to get evicted from their house or their apartment. That should never exist in a church body. It just shouldn't. Never. Especially if it's a person who you know is faithful, who gives, you know, for so forth and so on. Yep, that's the key. And you know, we've been very fortunate. Those who we've helped, they, they you know been faithful to the church, giving, and we we we've always been that way. But like I said, the guy that called me on the phone just hey, I can't tell y'all at least four or five times a year I get a call about do y'all help with power bills. I say no, I know someone. You can call uh, Interfaith Ministries up there uh, behind the YMCA. You know, they may be able to help you, but uh, we can't do that. I know one lady said she owed like $600 on her power bill. I said, no, ma'am. I said, they're not even going to help you with that much. They may give you, and then I asked, how'd your power bill get so high? That was another question I asked, because those are questions you have to ask. But you have people getting in a situation like that. No, you're not part. You need to be part of a church community and love and serve in the church this shows again the importance of being in a covenant community together it is very important it is vital it was important for Israel to be a set apart people to God and be separate and different from the pagans around them so God was showing through his people how they should live Showing the pagans, this is what it means to be holy and set apart for me. Well, the way that you're doing the pagans is is just evil. You're worshiping false god. You're sacrificing to your false uh, idols. This is how you worship the one true God. This is how you treat slaves. This is how you treat the poor. This is how you treat the sojourners and the fatherless and the you know, the orphans, the widows. Through God's people, they were showing the pagans how to live holy and separate to this holy God. And we as believers, we as Christians, we have to show ourselves as different from the world and do the same thing. Amen? That's a good place to land. Uh, I pray that you all were blessed by what we heard tonight. And the Lord be with us until we meet on the Lord's day.